Good afternoon, everyone. It is January 28th, and it's another cold Friday here in Jefferson City. And uh, bringing you some of the news of the week and some a lot of questions that we've gotten over the week, uh, a lot of them stemming from our state capital behind us. Of course, you saw the news, uh, hopefully, that we sent out the other day that uh, the reports are is that the governor is withdrawing the nominations of all four of the people that he nominated for the state board. Uh, no doubt at some point in time, he will renominate other people. When that happens, nobody knows for sure. And of course, we'll report on you where that happens. So if anybody was planning to come down next week to uh, testify one way or the other about any of the nominees, that uh, is not that is no longer scheduled to take place. Now, I have had a lot of questions about, does that mean the state board's not going to be doing anything, that there won't be inspections, there won't be financial examinations, all that stuff? The answer is no. Uh, you need to keep in mind always the difference between the actual state board, which is the six people who are appointed by the governor, five licensed, one public member, and then, a, and then confirmed by the Senate, and the actual staff of the state board, the people who do the day-to-day -day operations. This uh, does not affect most of the things, almost all the things that the staff of the state board does on a daily basis. So yes, licenses will still be processed. They'll still be collecting dues uh, and fees, and they'll still be sending out the inspectors and still doing the financial examinations and so forth and so on. Uh, that will continue. It is possible that if there is a, a good deal of time uh, before the governor makes the next appointments, that there'll be a period of time where the actual board members, the six board members, well, they don't have enough to have a quorum. They need at least four people at a meeting to take any real action. So there may not be a quorum, which means the, the biggest upshot of that is that there could be a backlog of uh, disciplinary actions because as hopefully you know, through the disciplinary process, although that might be started by the staff, eventually before it's all said and done, if if things aren't settled or agreed to or dropped or whatever, eventually it comes down to the actual members of the state board voting on whether or not to discipline someone, um, a, a process that's been in place for a long time. And if they don't have a quorum, they can't vote on that. So there is certainly the possibility that there'll be a backlog. Now, this is not the first time this has happened uh, to the state board of the bombers and funeral directors. You may recall call, there was a uh, close to a year period, almost a year period uh, a while back, where the state board did not have a quorum, quorum. And when they finally came back and got everybody appointed and confirmed, then there was a pretty good backlog of disciplinary actions. It's happened to other boards in the past. Uh, it happened a lot uh, for a period of time when uh, Governor Nixon was governor. There were a lot of boards that didn't have quorums. And so it can cause problems down the road, but it should not affect uh, the day-to-day -day operations of you dealing with the state board. Speaking of those inspectors, uh, the inspections are going on. There are people going out being inspected uh, on the, the regular routine basis as in the past. And uh, one change that you may notice in how they're doing the inspections is in the past, uh, the inspectors always had a, a, a piece of paper that uh, had a checklist on it on a clipboard or in their notebook and they would uh, they would go around and if they saw something that was wrong uh, and if you know if maybe they'd let you fix it right away but if not who knows they 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 check it and the po important thing is they had a piece of paper in front of them they write down any things that they saw was wrong they would sign it and more often than not they would uh, let you make a photocopy of that so that you'd have one for your records now that was very handy for a number of reasons 
First off, of course, these inspections are usually, not always, but usually unannounced. So it's quite possible that the owner of the funeral home, the funeral director in charge of the funeral home, or the funeral director who's in, the one who is supposed to handle compliance issues or dealing with the state board, it's possible those people were not there while the inspector was there. So that meant you having a piece of paper saying, here's what the inspector found was very useful for a number of reasons. One, the the, uh, the owner or the person in charge could look at that piece of paper and say, oh, okay, yeah, we, uh, yeah we, we need to fix those things and let's fix them right now before we get a letter from the state board saying, uh, what are you gonna do about it? Uh, then we can tell them right away, those are already been fixed. It might be, of course, that you took a look at that and say, no, that's wrong. We're not in violation of that. Uh, the inspector made a mistake, in which case then that gave you the opportunity to get your ducks in a row and be prepared to uh, respond if and when you got a letter from the state board saying you did something wrong. And although this was very rare, I believe, I believe it was very rare. I have had a couple funeral directors tell me that over the years, sometimes they would get a inspection paper that had nothing wrong on it. But then later on, they'd get a letter saying, according to our inspection, you did something wrong or you're doing something wrong. And then they were able to show that inspection paper uh, to the state board staff and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, when your inspector was here, they didn't find anything, but now you're saying I'm doing something wrong. What's up with that? Uh, you know, I've never dealt with one of those personally, but I have had a, uh, for on behalf of anybody, but I have heard from a couple of funeral homes that that did at some time in the past happen. Well, when you had that piece of paper, that was a good thing. The issue is the state board inspectors have now gone to iPads. So instead of having that piece of paper in their hand, they've got an iPad with the checkbox on it. And that was, uh, I'm sure that's more efficient for the uh, state board. Uh, in the long run might save them a lot of time and money, but the problem was the inspectors then were leaving and you didn't have a copy of what it was they found. Now, I should have reported this a few weeks ago because this is really old news, but frankly, I forgot to tell you about it. Well, after we had a few funeral homes call us up about that issue, uh, we at the association, we went over uh, to the state board and told them about that concern that people weren't getting a copy of what the inspector did and the state board told us that, okay, that's, we understand that. So uh, going forward, what we're gonna try to do is email uh, a copy of what's on that iPad to the funeral home right away so that uh, the funeral home has right away what that inspector did or did not mark. And I've already heard from one funeral home that said, yes, that did happen. The inspector came in, they had their iPad, they checked all the boxes, and before they left, they hit some buttons and sure enough, they had an email with what the inspector had on their iPad. But let us know if uh, if that's not happening or you're not told that that's an option or you ask for it and the inspector says, I can't do that, let us know. Because at least the staff of the state board has said that is something they want to be able to provide the funeral homes is uh, uh, at least an email of what it is the inspector has done. So again, we've done, we did that a, a little while back when we met with them on that. Uh, I forgot to tell you about it. Sorry, that was my fault. Needless to say, we've had a few other things going on around here. Also, of course, the, uh, the financial examinations are still going on. And what we are hearing from people, they did stop for a while, uh, while there was the changeover of staff, but I've heard that they are starting up again. And just like before, I think the focus has not changed from what I'm hearing, is that, uh, 
of course, they, they might look at everything, but one of the things that appears that they're focusing on right now is some of the more technical aspects of your pre-need contract. They will take a look at your pre-need contracts and make sure, did you write the phone number of the beneficiary on here? And if it's blank, they'll say, well, that's a problem because the, the statute says you're supposed to have the phone number. Or did you leave off the uh, uh, provider number? and so forth and so on. Did you have the full address on here? Or did you not leave the, you know, don't have the address of somebody? Um, the, uh, the, the good thing about that is that we know that is that if you get the letter in the mail saying that they're going to come out and take a look at your stuff because it's your turn to get your financial exam, go through your contracts, take a look, make sure you have it filled out. If you're missing your provider number on a contract, put it on the contract. If you don't have the phone number of the purchaser, we'll figure out what that phone number is and put it on if you can. Now, we all know there are some times where those contracts ask for information that actually may not exist. It is possible, even in this day and age, that somebody might not actually have a phone number uh, for whatever reason. Or they, there are even people out there that don't, you know, you might have somebody that doesn't have a social security number or doesn't have this or doesn't have that. Well, if that's the case, put that on the contract. Okay. If, if somebody's living at a nursing home or living with a family or living somewhere where they don't have their own phone number, well, one option, of course, is to put some sort of phone number on there where you would be able to get in contact with them or at least get a message to them. Okay. So uh, even though they might not have a, a phone number themselves, maybe the uh, extended the care living or the uh, hospice or wherever they're at, you know, there's probably a phone number there. So you can put that down. And even though you're not calling them up, even though the beneficiary is not picking up the phone, at the very least, you should be able to get a hold of them. If there absolutely is no information, this person does not have that information. They don't have that. Put that on the contract. Just put it. Does not have one. Not available. Not applicable. Something like that. Uh, because uh, all the reports I've, I've been getting back from people who have, who have had these audits are saying the uh, the inspectors, the, the financial examiners are being very reasonable about this. Uh, you know, they're, they're not going to drop a ton of bricks on your head uh, if you're trying to do the right thing. That's what they want to see is, are you trying to do the right thing? And if they see that there's something missing and something needs to be done, are you trying to fix it? So that's a good thing to know. Uh, before your financial examination starts, take a look at your contracts, all your documents, make sure that information is on there and you'll avoid any problems. And then going forward, uh, always try to make sure all of those fields are filled out. Um, something else interesting going on, and I've got, interesting enough, I've gotten several calls on this this week, and it actually has nothing to do with funeral directing uh, or the state board or anything like that, but it does have to do with what's going on at the Capitol and why you haven't heard that anything else has been going on over there except for a few things. And that has been the big fight that's gone on the last several weeks about redistricting. I've had a number of people call me up wanting me to try to explain what, what do they keep hearing about this map thing and what's going on with that and why does it seem that nothing else is happening while they're arguing about that? Well, for many, many years, Missouri had nine House of Representative representatives that go to Washington, D.C. We had nine representatives that went to Washington, D.C. as part of Congress. Well, as part of the census, Missouri lost one of those because our population did not grow as fast as some other areas. And there's only so many to go around. 
And so we actually lost one of them. So that meant they had to completely redraw the map. Now, for many, many years, uh, what they have done usually is draw a map that had out of those nine people, seven districts that were relatively safe. You, you never count on anything and sometimes something weird would happen or something unexpected would happen, but, but seven districts that were relatively safe for Republicans and two districts in St. Louis and Kansas City that were relatively safe for Democrats. Again, no guarantees on anything, but that, that's the way it was. Now, when we lost one of those, uh, they had to take one of those out and redraw the map. So the bipartisan co commission that included both Democrats and Republicans that came up with the first draft of the map came up with what they called the 6-2 map. And that gave six districts, which again, can't guarantee everything. You never know for sure what would happen, but it's likely that those are six relatively safe Republican districts. And then two districts, one in Kansas City and one in the St. Louis area that are relatively safe for Democrats, six and two. There are a group of Republicans over there uh, at the Senate that were pushing for a seven one map, which would have created seven districts that were at least in their mind, relatively safe for Republican and then one for a Democrat. Now you can argue about whether that's a good idea or not, or whether the population and the boundaries make sense. If you do that, there are arguments on both sides as usual, but the biggest problem with that is that if you weren't not, if you were not going to accept the bipartisan plan that a number of Democrats had signed off on, if you did something else, well, you can be pretty sure that somebody, probably one of the Democrats, uh, understandably so, by the way, I would think, uh, would take that to court. And if you took that to court, there's no telling what a court would do. It might throw the whole thing out, might force them to start over again. It might redraw the map themselves, and they might come up with a 5-3 map, which would upset the people who were wanting, you know, both the 6-2 and the 7-1. So uh, it looks like, uh, as of yesterday, um, it looks like that that 7-2 map is what is going to go forward. But while that has been going on, it's been very contentious over there. There are people with very angry at other people who took one side or the other. And because of that, there hasn't been a whole lot else going on uh, while they were considering that. The other thing that has been considering going on over there is the budget. You might have seen that Governor Parsons has proposed uh, a pay raise for state workers. And if there are any state workers out there watching this, I'm sure that you you, you were glad to hear that. But uh, there has been arguments since then about, well, how are we going to do that? Are they all going to get it at once? Are we going to phase it in? Does everybody get the same amount? Missouri actually is getting a bit of a windfall of money from uh, federal government having to do with different uh, uh, infrastructure projects, uh, COVID relief money, uh, so forth and so on. So Missouri actually is getting a, a bunch of money they really kind of hadn't planned on. And so that means there's an argument as to what to do with that extra money. The governor wants to spend some of that money, at least, in paying down the state's debt. Just like if you pay off your credit card, you don't have to pay that interest going on further. Uh, the argument is if we pay off some of this state debt that we have, in the long run, we're going to save a lot of money by not paying interest. Of course, other people 
want to use that money to do things, to fix roads, to fix bridges, to uh, repair buildings, to help our colleges and schools. Mostly when that kind of thing happens, you usually get a compromise. We're okay, we'll spend some of it this way and we'll spend some of it that way. All right. Um, and uh, usually those things get worked out, but it is taking some time to do it. And so on both the House and Senate side, people are asking those kind of questions. That also has bogged everything down as far as anything else moving forward. The one good part of this, however, is it is possible. You can't count on it yet, but it is possible that there might be some funds available to help modernize the electronic death registration system. No guarantees, no promises, but our association definitely supports giving money to uh, upgrade and renew and bring into the 20th century. I'm not even worried about the 21st century. I'm worried about the 20th century, that electronic death registration system. Now, I know a lot of you out there that have been around for a while will say, what about that $3? I remember when they raised the cost of the first death certificate. This is way back when, a while ago. They, they raised it from 10 to 13 for the very first one. And we were told that that $3 was going to go to uh, the computer system. Well, Believe me, I believe you when you say that's what you were told. I've had so many people tell me that they were at meetings and hearings and were told that that $3 was going to go for the computer system. The problem was the statute never said that and the regulations never said that. So that was $3 that poof, never was earmarked to be required to go to the computer system. So there's that. The other problem we have with the current computer system is unlike other states, Missouri did not purchase an off-the-shelf program. A lot of people know that our system, Moever system, is, is at least similar and comes from the same manufacturer as a few other states like Kansas. And they always ask, well, why does Kansas's get updated? Why is theirs easier to use, but ours is still stuck the way it was 12 years ago or, or, or whatever when it was? Well, the reason for that is when Missouri bought the system, eh, in hindsight, there were some mistakes made. Instead of buying an off-the-shelf system that you could easily upgrade, Missouri had it very specifically customized for Missouri and Missouri only. Now, that might have been nice right at the start, but that meant when an off-the-shelf upgrade came by, those didn't work necessarily for Missouri system. And if you wanted to get them work, you're going to have to pay a whole lot of money to have somebody come out and rewrite Missouri's code, computer code, to work with the upgrades. It's like instead of buying Windows, uh, whatever, what are we up to now? Windows 11? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what we're up to anymore. Instead of buying Windows 11 off the shelf, you had Windows come out and design a Windows just for your company. And then sure enough, when Windows 12 comes out, guess what? Windows 12 doesn't work. And Windows 13 and 4, those don't work because you have a custom system. And to get those upgrades that are in 12, 13, 14, you would have to pay Microsoft to come out and redo your system all over again. That's a little bit of an overgeneralization, but it gets you the idea of the situation that Missouri has found itself in. Uh, to do upgrades to our system, to get rid of things like uh, that crazy backspace key that causes problems. The fact that you can't do uh, affidavits online, the notification problems that we had, which uh, 
they've worked really hard to try to solve, but it's still come up to be an issue. Those were largely the result of the fact that you couldn't just simply buy an off-the-shelf upgrade. You had to uh, pay somebody from the company to come in to redo it, and that is hugely potentially expensive. Bottom line, if it is possible for there to be money that is specifically earmarked to help this system, and we're not talking about raising the cost of the death certificates again, no, no. Nobody is suggesting that the death certificate price go up. Nobody is suggesting that the fees you or the family pays go up. But there's a possibility that there's some money out there that could be used that wouldn't cost you anything out of pocket on your death certificates to go to upgrade the system. So we're going to be sending out a legislative update next week. Uh, well, there's a couple, there's a bill that was filed just this week that we're going over right now that deals with death certificates that we want to have a good look at over the weekend and talk with the sponsor before we send out the word on that. We will be sending out a legislative update and included in that was going to be a request that you, when you get the chance, if you have any opportunity to talk to your state senator or representative, let them know that if there's a way to have money go to help improve the electronic registration system that won't cost the families more money. I mean, we, we don't want that. But if there's a way that there's some money that will help out, make this system more modern and easier to use, that you certainly support that because uh, our board certainly supports that. And we think uh, most funeral directors do as well. All right. That is uh, the, the, the update for today. Continue letting us know how the death certificate system is going. I'm sure, as you know, the uh, the, the ability to do a drop for paper, that's disappeared. So if the doctor is not doing doctor's paper or is not on the electronic system, you have to call vital records up here in Jefferson City and they are supposed to then try to get a hold of the doctor and uh, pressure that doctor to do it electronically. I've heard a couple good stories actually. I've heard some success stories where vital records has succeeded in getting a doctor who never used the electronic system before to now start using the system. I've also heard some failures where it's been now since the first of the year, the very beginning of the year, and uh, the family still doesn't have their death certificate because Vital Records has not been able to talk this doctor into doing anything. And once again, I haven't had a lot of people call in about this or send me emails in. The ones who have, thank you very much. We still want your input on that. Let us know how that's going. Also, let us know if those inspectors are letting you know that they can email you a copy of their inspection sheet uh, when they're done with their inspection before you leave, because we want to know how that's going as well. The only persons that talked to me about that so far said the inspectors did it, so that's good. But if they're not doing it, we want that known as well. As always, if you have any questions, please give us a holler here at the association office or email us at info at mofuneral.org. And uh, of course, we will respond and get back to you as soon as we can. So until then, have a what till next time, have a wonderful weekend, stay warm, and as always, stay safe.